Nations often build monuments to help tell the story of themselves to themselves. Today in this travelogue episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, we look at two large-scale works in the United States, Mount Rushmore in South Dakota and the Washington Monument in the National Capitol, two famous places that every American thinks they know about. But what they might not know is that there are secret rooms and hatches. Both are shrouded in controversy. One is a magnet for UFOs and Bigfoot, and the other one might control the weather. It might even be a calendar counting down to the apocalypse itself. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. You're looking looking at the heads. heads. Sometimes Sometimes he goes goes too far. That's a quote from Apocalypse Now. Work on Mount Rushmore in South Dakota started in 1927 by sculptor and son of Danish immigrants who became polygamist Mormons in Idaho, John Gutston Borglum, who also did Stone Mountain in Georgia. The Mount Rushmore National Memorial was worked on for 14 years before it had to stop due to lack of funding, and technically, it was never finished. The idea came from South Dakota historian Jonah Leroy Doan Robinson in 1923. He really wanted to carve up a mountain to attract tourists to the area after he'd heard about the huge stone mountain project in the state of Georgia. His original idea was to commission a huge depiction of famous South Dakotans and other heroes of the Wild West, people like explorers Lewis and Clark, their guide Sacagawea, and an Ogla Lakota chief. But he also wanted to include Buffalo Bill Cody, you know, the guy who got famous killing over 4,000 buffalo as part of an effort to starve the Native Americans off their land. While his request for funding that particular project fell through, he was given permission to survey areas of interest. He thought maybe the area of needles in the Black Hills could work, but sculptor Borglum, who joined the project in August of 1925, didn't like the rock there. It was too soft. He wanted something harder and bigger, don't we all? He wanted a whole mountain. So they settled on a granite mountain that, unfortunately, was also very important to the Lakota Sioux people who'd been living in the area for over 300 years. Tunkashila Shkapapaha, or Six Grandfathers Mountain, also called Cougar Mountain, Ingmutankapaha, and other names as well. A site important not just to them, but to other Great Plains Native American nations like the Arapaho and the Cheyenne. For them, this was the center of the universe as well as a place known for growing medicinal herbs. The Lakota had been given the Black Hills in the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868 that ended a pretty nasty war between the white colonizers and the native people. But hey, it's just a piece of paper, right? 
So, of course, when gold was discovered just nine years later in 1877, the government broke the treaty and claimed the whole area. Seven years after that, a lawyer from New York named Charles Rushmore started up a tin mine in the area, since this metal had also been found in the Black Hills, and he kept joking that it would be cool if he could get the government to officially rename Six Grandfathers Mountain after himself. Ha 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 ha, what fun. But he was rich and well-connected, and so it worked. And Mount Rushmore it was. Needless to say, the Lakota were not very happy with this and filed a series of lawsuits in the early 1920s to get the land back. The government had had the Black Hills declared a national park, partly to preserve its beauty, partly to encourage tourism, which was taking off thanks to more and more people buying this new device known as an automobile, and partly to keep the Native Americans out. Sculptor Borglum didn't really want the same figures that Robinson had wanted. He thought symbols of America's expansion were better suited for such a grand-scale work. Plus, he'd become pals with the Ku Klux Klan in Georgia while working on the Stone Mountain piece, so maybe not Native Americans in there, huh? In letters, he would sometimes tut-tut about what he called, quote, the mongrel horde, meaning specifically Native Americans. Borglum was a famous jerk, getting in trouble with the Stone Mountain Association for, quote, his offensive egotism and his delusions of grandeur. His response to this criticism was to destroy all the models of that work with an axe and then hightail it out of Georgia. And that's how he came to get on the Rushmore Project. The subject he wanted were George Washington, the first president, Thomas Jefferson, who brokered the Louisiana Purchase, which more than doubled the size of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, who kept the nation together during the Civil War, and Theodore Roosevelt, who helped make the Panama Canal a reality. Has-been actor and right-wing troll wannabe Kevin Sorbo recently tweeted, quote, Ever wonder why there are no Democrats on Mount Rushmore? His point, I guess, being that no Democrat is worthy of the honor. The internet was quick to respond, pointing out that Washington was not part of any political party. In fact, he'd warned against creating political parties in the first place. Jefferson was a member of a party called the Democratic-Republican Party, which then would go on to form what we would today call the Democratic Party. Lincoln was the first Republican president, but that party was formed in 1854 in opposition to the Democrat-led Kansas-Nebraska Act, which split one territory into those two separate states, but also added fire to the slavery issue by essentially nullifying the Missouri Compromise. And then there's Teddy Roosevelt, who had tried to get progressive conservatives to take control of the GOP, failed, and ended up creating his own progressive party, nicknamed the Bull Moose Party. So it looks like we have one no party, one Democrat, one progressive Republican, and one Federalist Republican. Let's face it, thinking is not Kevin Sorbo's strong suit. In 1937, a bill was introduced in Congress to add a bust of civil rights leader Susan B. Anthony next to the four dudes, but that failed. Adding JFK was suggested in the 1960s, and adding Ronald Reagan was suggested in 1985 and again in 1999. Both of these failed to get approval. Someone once asked Barack Obama about it, but he said his ears were way too big. Nonetheless, in April 2016, the American News Facebook page claimed that there were, in fact, plans to add Obama to this collection and that such plans have been in the works for two years. This was a dog whistle attempt to stir up conservatives after the Treasury Secretary announced that Harriet Tubman would replace Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill, a plan which to date has not come to fruition and no designs for that have been submitted. 
American, quote, news had previously made many other untrue claims like Obama had prohibited an admiral in the Navy from handing out Bibles, that Obama had admitted his birth certificate was a forgery, that FEMA was starting up concentration camps in Arizona, that taxpayers in Texas were being forced to pay reparations to black residents of the state, that reality TV star Sadie Robinson from Duck Divency was at death's door after a major car accident, she'd only had a minor fender bender, and that Beyonce had been forbidden from ever going to Canada again after her scandalous performance at the 2016 Super Bowl halftime show, a piece of musical theatrical work that focused on black empowerment, but which American News said was racist. The New York Times once conducted a survey asking people who they'd like to see added to the mountain, and the winner, with 66% of all votes, Democrat and Republican, was FDR. Donald Trump made noises about how, you know, maybe he should be added to the monumental sculpture, but of course that went nowhere. So apparently, he commissioned a small bronze Mount Rushmore that also includes his face over on the right next to Lincoln, which he keeps in his office at Mar-a-Lago and which he calls Trump more because of course he does. His people say it was a gift from the governor of South Dakota back in July 2020. It was made by South Dakotan artists Lee Looning and Sherry Treby, who are big fans of the Donald. And the Trump campaign apparently sells a copy of it for 100 bucks. There are several compacted piles of refuse scattered around the country that are parks, all of which are named Mount Trashmore. The most famous one is in Virginia Beach, Virginia, but there are also ones in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Broward County, Florida, and Evanston, Illinois. Sculpting these 60-foot-high faces, that's 18.2 meters, on the real Mount Rushmore involved using dynamite and then a technique called honeycombing, which is when you drill holes to remove smaller rocks by hand. They shifted 450,000 U.S. tons of stone. The original design had them depicted from the waist up, but then that proved impractical. Borglum, the sculptor, had also wanted to put a huge text with information about the four former presidents on the mountainside, plus the entire text of the Louisiana Purchase, but that was not going to work out. One of the several problems would be the font size would have been ridiculously huge in order to be seen from a distance. So instead, he built a room to store important artifacts in, a room that conspiracy theorists wonder about. This room was a compromise on Borglum's backup idea for the huge plaque, a hall of records that would have had a grand entrance with a vault 80 by 100 feet at the top of 800 granite steps. The idea was that the original Declaration of Independence, the original Constitution, and other important items from America's past could be stored there in a combination vault and museum. Funding got tight as America dithered as to whether or not to help their European allies against the encroachments of the Nazis in World War II. Plus, the budget that had been approved for the monument said that federal monies could only be used for the faces, not for side projects like this. And after only getting 70 feet inside the rock, Borglum suddenly died of a heart attack in March 1941. And then America entered World War II and the Hall of Records project languished. Borglum's descendants tried for decades to get it going again, and in 1998 managed to get the small bit that had been excavated, floored in titanium, and 16 plates made of porcelain and enamel depicting the Constitution, info on the four presidents, info on Borglum, of course, the Bill of Rights, and other papers. These were sealed in a teakwood box and placed inside the room, then covered with a 1,200-pound capstone, like a time capsule. Not quite what Borglum had had in mind, but I guess it's better than nothing. 
Some eagle-eyed folks have noticed details they find stimulating. The chamber has a vaulted ceiling like a church and is laid out kind of like a cross. And most importantly, it's way up in the cliffs above Lincoln's head. There's no direct access to the room and it is closed to the public. So, so what are they, are they really, really hiding, hiding in there? The short answer is nothing apart from what's already been mentioned. The thing isn't even finished. If you want to see what it looks like, you can see a video of two guys who go up there from the What's Inside YouTube channel in the dedicated playlist for this episode on our own YouTube channel. But that darned movie, National Treasure Book of Secrets, the 2007 sequel to the successful Nicolas Cage 2004 National Treasure hit, has Gutston Borglum hired by then-president Calvin Coolidge create Mount Rushmore for the purpose of hiding a secret treasure and this chamber is part of that and as so often happens some folks see this movie and think well, 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 what if what that's, if that's actually, actually true, true? And they're just, they're pretending, just pretending it's fiction, it's fiction as like as a like reverse psychology, psychology kind of thing. thing. Yeah, that must be it. Somehow, married screenwriter team Cormac and Marianne Wiberly, who also wrote the first National Treasure movie, as well as I Spy, The Sixth Day, Bad Boys 2, and Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, have access to secrets that the federal government wants to keep hidden and then put those secrets in a film that opened at number one in the box office for its opening weekend and went on to make $457 million. And they were totally allowed to do this by the evil deep state conspiracy. Yeah, that's totally what happened. And the fact that the government used the lack of tourists to start a huge renovation project in July 2020 during the COVID lockdown has only added fuel to speculative fires about what's really going on up there. Surely it's something nefarious. Black, Black Hills, Hills weirdness. weirdness. The whole area is full of mystery. On July 20th, 2014, two men hanging out in a remote campground in the area saw a ball of turquoise light moving across the sky heading towards Mount Rushmore. Campers at another site said that they had seen three glowing disks moving around in a kind of a dance in the Black Hills Valley that same evening. In fact, there have been dozens of UFO reports centered around this weird sculpted mountain. Discs, triangles, teardrops, a big bright egg, and others. Some try to claim this is all activity from Ellsworth Air Force Base, which is just 35 miles away to the northeast at the edge of Rapid City. That military base has also seen its fair share of UFOs, especially a cluster of sightings back in 1952 that were looked into by Project Blue Book. But things in the sky are not the only weird things seen in this area. In 2006, a man said he saw a huge, hairy animal hanging around in the forest near Mount Rushmore. This eight-foot-tall, hairy humanoid was calmly eating grass. Yes, that's right, Bigfoot. 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 In 2008, a couple who lived near the edge of the forest said they heard unearthly howls at night. The Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, which is a real thing, analyzed recordings of this howl and concluded that, yes, it was weird. After more reports, they sent investigator David Petty to check it out. He talked to many people who told stories of hearing and or seeing Bigfoot-like creatures in the area, and even local Native Americans told tales that went back generations, including an old Lakota legend of a star people who watch over the Lakota. Not very effectively, if you ask me. But of course, no one has produced anything besides anecdotes. No proof. 
Bigfoot hunter Bill Brock says the UFO sightings and the visual and auditory sightings of Bigfoot in the area almost always coincide with one another. Ergo, they're connected. University of Iowa plasma physicist Jack Scudder says there might be something that we could term portals in the Earth's magnetic field. He calls these X-points, or to be more technical, electron diffusion points. These connect a certain spot in our planet's electromagnetic field directly with a spot somewhere in the sun's atmosphere. By the way, this is a real thing and has actually been investigated by NASA. Mr. Brock the Bigfoot Hunter thinks there could be a collection of these X-points here in the Black Hills Forest and Valley, but since he doesn't really understand the science that these are purely electromagnetic tendrils, he thinks portal, maybe they're dimensional portals that allow otherworldly creatures to step through onto and perhaps into our world. He also says he thinks that particles from these portals are the cause of global warming. So there's that. 70 miles or so south of Mount Rushmore, near the state line with Wyoming and Nebraska, there's the Black Hills Ordnance Depot, better known as Fort Igloo. The name partly comes from the fact that it's near the town of Igloo, South Dakota, but also because all the structures there are these odd sort of humps, the entryways to a series of underground bunkers where chemical weapons and other nasty things were once stored. Weirdly, famous American news anchor Tom Brokaw spent a decent chunk of his childhood growing up on this base. This now decommissioned military facility was bought in 2016 by the Vivos Group, a California company that builds and buys up places like this, which they then harden to withstand massive catastrophes that might occur in the future. You can subscribe to their service, which gets you the right to enter one of these facilities in the event of a mass extinction disaster, assuming, of course, that you can get there somehow. Since some people think that the chamber up by Lincoln's hairline on Mount Rushmore is actually a nuclear bunker built for the elite of the New World Order for when they kick off a global nuclear catastrophe to reduce the population, this Fort Igloo place also raises some eyebrows. Mine's bigger. Native Americans of the Black Hills are still embroiled in legal disputes over the land and have decided to one-up the establishment with the Crazy Horse Memorial, which when finished will be the largest mountain carving in the world. Who was Crazy Horse? He was a Lakota Sioux born somewhere between 1840 and 1845, became a respected warrior, and then started having trance visions after he saw Chief Conquering Bear gunned down by U.S. soldiers at the Granton Massacre in 1854. He then became a respected war leader, engaging U.S. government troops on numerous occasions, including the battles of Platte Bridge and Red Butte, the Battle of the Hundred Hand, and the Wagon Box Fight. He was the leader of the Great Sioux War in 1876-77, including the Battle of Little Bighorn that defeated General Custer. In 1877, he surrendered to government forces with his cousin Little Big Man, not the Dustin Hoffman character from the film of the same name, different guy, and then was fatally stabbed by a guard or guards during an escape attempt. Little Big Man tells a different tale, however. He says the two guards stabbed Crazy Horse in the back as he was being escorted to a holding cell. Regardless of what actually happened, his body was given to his family, who buried it in a location that is not publicly known. He has become a symbol of Native American traditions and mysticism, resistance to the encroachment of the white man, and the U.S. government's constant betrayal of Native peoples. 
As far back as the late 1920s, Oglala Lakota chief Henry Standing Bear started campaigning to have Crazy Horse added to Mount Rushmore. His brother Luther Standing Bear even wrote to Gutston Borglum, the sculptor, about it in 1931, but Borglum never wrote back, unsurprisingly. So Henry contacted Polish-American sculptor Korczak Sikowski, who'd done some of the work at Rushmore, about doing a whole separate monument just for Crazy Horse. Sikowski agreed and spent some time in 1940 hanging out with the Lakota people, learning their traditions and ways. A private funding mechanism was set up because Henry didn't want any government funds, and the project started on June 3, 1948. Sarkovsky died in 1982, so his widow Ruth has continued the project as CEO of the Memorial Foundation. The work continues to this day. When the whole project is finally completed, it'll be the second largest statue in the world. Only the Statue of Unity in Gujarat, India will be taller. And while the heads of Mount Rushmore are 60 feet high, this one has a head 87 feet high, plus an arm 263 feet long, and the whole thing will measure 641 feet long by 563 feet high. There will also be a satellite campus of the University of South Dakota to be called the Indian University of North America. There is also right now the Indian Museum of North America located inside the visitor center. Not everyone's happy with this whole thing, however. Some people didn't like that Henry Standing Bear contacted the sculptor Zikowski all on his own, but rather thought that there should have been family consensus on the matter since that is the Lakota custom. Others take offense at the whole idea, saying making a huge memorial to a single man is very much the antithesis of what Crazy Horse stood for. Also, Crazy Horse shied away from cameras, which were a new invention in his day, so his likeness is cobbled together from written eyewitness accounts, so no one even knows if it looks like him. Well, it's a bit late now. The face is done and the rest of the work continues, which will, when it's all finished, include the front half of his horse. It's about 17 miles from Mount Rushmore. Admission is $30 per car, and you can take a private tour for a tax-deductible donation of $125 per person. A grassroots-level donation will get you admission to the memorial and the regular newsletter. Tone Deaf Tourism Located 16 miles east of Atlanta, Georgia, there's Gutston Borglum's Previous work, Stone Mountain, carved into a quartz mazonite dome, Monadnock Mountain, and currently the largest bas-relief sculpture in the world. This massive work, sitting 400 feet, 120 meters above the ground, shows three men who really did everything they could to continue the practice of human slavery sitting on their horses. Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, seated on his horse Blackjack. Robert E. Lee, the Confederacy's greatest general, sitting on the horse Traveler, and Stonewall Jackson, another general second only to Lee, sitting atop his favorite horse, Little Sorrel. The tableau is 90 feet high, 190 feet wide, and cut 42 feet into the mountainside. One of the driving forces behind this monument to insurrection was C. Helen Plain, a woman very active in the United Daughters of the Confederacy. It was she who chose Borglum as the artist, though she would not shake his hand because he was a Yankee. When funding became difficult and it looked like the project would have to be abandoned, the Ku Klux Klan stepped in to help. This white supremacist terrorist hate group actually started back in 1865, was then suppressed in 1874, but then reformed in 1915 in a ceremony at the top of this very mountain. 
As such, it's kind of a sacred site for the clan, and they routinely had cross burnings up there. So naturally, they were pretty keen on this whole Confederate monument idea. Mrs. Plain was also for it. In fact, she suggested to Borgum that he add a group of clansmen in the background going up to the mountain for one of their rituals. Fortunately, he did not take this advice. Though it was started before the Mount Rushmore project, it didn't officially open until April 14, 1965. For you history buffs, that's a hundred years to the day after Abraham Lincoln's assassination. They clearly wanted to commemorate this date since the sculpture itself wouldn't get finished for another seven years. But those Georgians just had to remind everybody about Lincoln's assassination. Oh, and there's a replica plantation under the sculpture, opened in 1963 for anyone who wants to see a thoroughly whitewashed version of what one of those places was like. All in all, it's in shockingly bad taste, at least to modern eyes that aren't white supremacist eyes. It should come as no surprise that there have been calls to have the whole thing blasted off the face of the mountain. After the mass shooting at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina on June 17, 2015, the NAACP started a campaign in earnest to have Stone Mountain reduced to rubble. Technically, the site is a military monument, and so any alteration or removal would have to come through the state legislature, and that body seems reluctant to make any moves in that direction, at least partly because Stone Mountain is the single most popular tourist attraction in the entire state of Georgia. Instead, they suggested, why don't we put up a freedom bell to commemorate Martin Luther King Jr.? How does that sound? Nah, just take it down, said the NAACP. It just seems kind of weird and inappropriate to simply add a black symbol next to the Confederate one and say, there, it all balances out. In 2017, Stacey Abrams, an African-American member of the State House of Representatives and later the first black female gubernatorial candidate in the country, she lost to Brian Kemp, she called Stone Mountain, quote, a blight upon our state and called for it to be sandblasted off. But... As of this recording, it is still there, and yes, white nationalists continue to gather there for fascist rallies whenever they can get a permit to do so. I suppose the good news is, it's getting harder and harder to get those permits. Phallic, Phallic. Appalling. Appalling. The Washington, the Washington Monument. Monument. Another iconic monument in the United States is in that country's city of monuments, Washington, D.C., the national capital. After a trip to America, British writer Arnold Bennett supposedly wrote in his diary, quote, saw Washington Monument, phallic, appalling, a national catastrophe. Well, I guess everybody's a critic. This structure is made of granite, marble, and bluestone gneiss. It is the tallest obelisk in the world and the largest structure made mainly of stone in the world. And for five years, it was the tallest structure in the world until the Eiffel Tower was built and beat it. After the country's first president, George Washington, died in 1799, Congress started casting about for something suitable to remember him by. Maybe a big statue of him on a horse, since he'd been a military general who led the Continental Army to victory against the British, or maybe a big old tomb or a crypt like under a stone dome or something. Several ideas were put forth and dropped due to political squabbling. 
Things moved slowly in the upper echelons of government. The Washington National Monument Society was formed in 1833. They talked for three years and then opened a design competition in 1836, and that competition went on for nine years. Finally, in 1845, Robert Mills was chosen as the guy to do it. He was the first native-born American to be actually trained as an architect and had built a monument to Washington in Baltimore back in 1814, a tall Greek column. He had to top that column for the national capital, so he came up with a very complicated and ambitious design and went for an Egyptian-style obelisk. The Monument Society worried about the scope and cost of the design and managed to get it whittled down to a slightly simpler form. Construction began in 1848 with a cornerstone, though there are some who claim there was actually a cornerstone laid back in 1815. But at any rate, work continued at a very slow pace, interrupted by things like the Civil War. In fact, you can see a faint line about a third of the way up the Washington Monument that marks when construction stopped for 20 years during the Civil War and subsequent Reconstruction period and then started up again in 1878. The Army Corps of Engineers, who were then tasked with finishing the project, couldn't find an exact match for the marble being used. They came close, but not quite, and so the faint line. The capstone up on the top wasn't placed until 1884, and the monument wasn't officially opened until 1888, 43 years after Mills was chosen and 89 years after Washington's death. There is talk that slaves helped build it. It's probably not 100% true, since stonemasonry is a fairly high-skill thing, and it's not likely slaves would have been permitted to acquire that knowledge, but slaves may have been used to transport stone and tools. The capstone is made of aluminum, or aluminium if you're British, at the time the most expensive metal in the world. In fact, this is the largest chunk of that metal anywhere back then. It is 8.9 inches high, 23 centimeters, but then it was struck by lightning multiple times between 1885 and 1934, and three-eighths of an inch, one centimeter, was vaporized, so now it's shorter. A lightning rod was eventually installed to prevent further electrical erosion. The giant obelisk is still a magnet for lightning strikes today. Inscribed on the capstone are the words Laos Deo, which means praise to God. Up at the top, near the capstone, there's an access hatch that allows maintenance workers to crawl out, affix ropes, and then rappel down to do any necessary work. This was considered better than having unseemly scaffolding always around the Tauri Monument. It's pretty hard to see, but you can see this hatch on the eastern side facing the Capitol building. In the first decade of the 20th century, the monument suffered what popular mechanics called geological tuberculosis. The cement and rubble filling the space between the inner and outer walls started to leak through the outer material, which had cracked due to expanding and contracting in hot and cold weather. And then this oozy mixture leaked out from these cracks and then hardened upon contact with the air. So the whole thing was this kind of frozen, oozing, weird, cool kind of a thing. This problem has since been corrected. There is a tiny replica of the Washington Monument, just 12 feet tall, 3.6 meters, underneath a manhole cover not far from the full-size thing, just a little bit to the south. It's technically named Benchmark A and was used as a geodetic control point by the National Geodetic Survey or NGS, in their project to synchronize all government maps. It was put here in the 1880s as part of a huge program to level the ground across the entire country. 
This mini monument was actually above ground for some decades, but eventually it got buried inside of a brick chimney and covered with an unmarked manhole cover. If you want to find it, ask one of the helpful park rangers hanging around the National Mall. Though it took decades to build the Washington Monument here on the National Mall, there is another one 62 miles to the northwest in Boonesboro, Maryland, which is now part of Middleton, and that was built there in less than a single day in 1827. 500 local folks met up at 7.30 in the morning on July 4th, 1827, just 28 years after Washington had died. They walked the two miles from town to a nearby hilltop, grabbed a bunch of local rocks, and stacked them up in a kind of a beehive shape, 15 feet tall, about four and a half meters. They were done by four o'clock in the afternoon. Over the ensuing years, they have continued to add to it, and it is now around 30 feet high, a little over nine meters, with a spiral staircase up the center. The area is ADA compliant, but as the official website says, the toilets are not. So, sorry wheelchair folks. Of course, some folks look at the Washington Monument and think, hmm, huge Egyptian, Egyptian obelisk? obelisk, New World Order? Plus, who laid that cornerstone? Why, Benjamin French, a well-known Freemason. Hey, and also, this thing measures 555 feet, which is, we'll wait for it, is 6,660 inches, which is kind of, sort of, the mark of the beast, 666. Its actual height is 554 feet, 7 and 11 seconds inches high, according to one measurement, and 555 feet, 5 and 1 eighth inches, according to another. In either case, somewhere around 169 meters in change. It would be 6,655 and 11 seconds inches high, and according to the second one, it would be 6,665, 1.8 inches high. Plus, who says hell uses inches and feet for measuring things anyway? Also, there's a sizable chunk of the monument underground, so actually, the full length of the thing is more like 592 feet. Oh yeah? oh, yeah? Say the conspiracy folks. Well, inside the monument, there's advanced yet also ancient Egyptian technology, maybe from aliens who visited Earth long ago. And this protects the city of Washington, D.C. by drawing in energies from the Earth and creating a sort of an electrical shield over the city, which keeps away storms and stuff. This is from a 2014 article on the UFO Digest website by a T.H. Hughes, the only article he or she ever wrote for that website. You see, sometimes storms seem to be heading right for the city, and then they suddenly split in two, with one half going around one side of the city and one half going around the other side. So it must be the monument that does this. It's actually something called the heat island effect. This is quite simply a concentration of buildings that tend to trap heat. They radiate that heat out, making the city much warmer in certain spots than surrounding areas. And yet, this is true of all cities, and they get hit with storms all the time. So why is D.C. so often spared? There are several small heat islands in the D.C. area where temperatures on a hot day can get 16 or 17 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than anywhere else in the city. That's about 9.5 degrees Celsius. This has been noted and recorded for ages, and there are a few ideas as to why. One is with road distribution, which greatly adds radiated heat to the air, creating hotter pockets. 
One area that is often hotter than the rest of the city is the Northeast Quadrant over by the Catholic University of America and the Washington Jesuit Academy. More than one anti-Catholic televangelist has raised his eyebrows at this. Are the Catholics actually actually in direct direct contact contact with Satan Satan in hell? hell? And is that that why why their part part of the the city city is warmer? These people neglect to mention that that same district also houses the Providence Hospital and the Turkey Thicket Playground. Or maybe it's ancient tech that's actually hidden inside many obelisks around the world, according to T.H. Hughes's rambling article. After all, he or she or they says, the obelisk in London, I assume that Cleopatra's needle is what is meant here, has been the site of some odd goings-on, like people feeling dread when they walk past, or hearing disembodied voices calling their names, or seeing a naked man run past and into the river but without disturbing the water at all, or maniacal laughter emanating from the air, or electrical shocks. Some of the reports come from this obelisk's twin, which is in New York City's Central Park, supposedly. This, of course, is not an actual obelisk from Egypt, but a new structure, purpose-built. So maybe it's just the obelisk shape that makes it, I don't know, should we call it magical? Or maybe the Masons slash Illuminati and their seeming never-ending bid to hide the purposes of what they're doing while also doing things stupidly publicly are also up to something. Hughes concludes that maybe someone should try measuring the electrical field around the Washington Monument with a Gauss meter, but be careful because he would probably be arrested. I don't know why he would be arrested, but that sure does make things spicy, doesn't it? That's the thing about enigmas. You can kind of see what you want to see in them. Louis Farrakhan, head of the Nation of Islam, says the Washington Monument is 555 feet tall, and if you put a one in front of that, you get the year 1555, which is the year of the first landing at Jamestown, Virginia, and the very first cargo of slaves that landed on the shores of America. And so, therefore, the whole thing is a monument to slavery. Farrakhan is wrong, however. Jamestown was founded in 1607. Previous colonization attempts had occurred at Roanoke, North Carolina around 1585, a colony that mysteriously vanished without a trace. The Spanish founded things in what's now the U.S. before any of that, including St. Mary's in Georgia in 1566 and St. Augustine in Florida in 1565, which is the oldest continuously inhabited European established settlement in the lower 48. A short-lived colony at Pensacola, Florida was started in 1559, but in 1555 there was nothing. I think Farrakhan just made this up because he thought it sounded good. Now, he's not wrong that slavery in this land began before the oft-cited year of 1619, however. Some historians even think that really the first slaves brought to North America came on Columbus's ship back in 1492. We know the African slave trade to Europe started in 1441 when a Portuguese ship brought 12 captured people from modern-day Mauritania and used them as slaves. And the Spanish were using slaves all over Central and South America and in North America as they crept into that area, including their settlements in Georgia and Florida, all of which predate Roanoke and Jamestown. There is documentation that a cargo of 100 African slaves was brought to Florida and South Carolina by the Spanish, but the slaves rose up, broke free, and escaped into the countryside. This happened in 1526. Or maybe, according to a video on the Quest TV YouTube channel, the monument contains a secret code that predicts a worldwide apocalypse in the year 2022. 
You see, it's 555.5 feet high, which it isn't. Its base is 55 by 55 feet. There are five sides to a pyramid, if you include the bottom. There were 55 people who signed the Declaration of Independence, and George Washington was 55 years old when he signed the Constitution into law. Man, that is a lot of fives. And a guy named Edward McKinney thinks he sees a calendar in the height of the obelisk when you combine it with the Great Pyramid in Cairo. You see, each one foot of height equals one year. Again, this idea that the ancients used feet, which is a British measurement, boggles the mind, but whatever. You see, the Great Pyramid is 480 feet tall. So if you start in the year 1473, when the Eastern Roman Empire ended, then you get a kind of a clock moving up that goes through the voyages of Columbus in 1492, that's at 19 feet, to the founding of Jamestown in 1607, that's at 134 feet, the Declaration of Independence in 1776 at 303 feet, all the way up to the year 1991, which is when the USSR fell apart a country that didn't exist when this monument was built. Now, according to all this math, that'd be at 518 feet, and the Great Pyramid was only 481 feet tall when it was built, and it has since eroded down to 454 feet, so there's a bit of a math boo-boo right there. Also, the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire actually fell when Sultan Mehmed II captured Constantinople after a 53-day siege in 1453, not 1473. Plus, how on earth was Robert Mills supposed to have known that the Soviet Union would happen and fall apart in the timeline that it did? But Mr. McKinney is not really bothered by any of this. All he sees is the top bit, the more steeply angled part at the top called the Pyramidian. He says the base of that is the year 2009, and it is 13 feet tall, so that means the top is the year 2022. 2022. However, the top is not 13 feet tall, it is 55 and a half feet tall, which by the way is 666 inches, the same as the whole obelisk's width. So, once again, he is wrong. If the bottom of the Pyramidian is the year 2009, then the top would have to be the year 2064. If the top is 2022, then the bottom would have to be 1967, which incidentally is the year I was born. Coincidence? Coincidence? Not if I'm actually living in a freaking simulation, it isn't. Well, there are 13 levels just the same, he says. Maybe they're just not a foot tall each. Doing the math, each one would have to be 51.2 inches tall or a bit over four feet. But whatever, he's clearly a loon who can't even be bothered to get out a calculator. But anyway, 2022 is the apocalypse, according to this guy, and that's this year. So I suppose if you want to see any of these monuments, you'd better hurry up. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.